0: When COVID hit, no one was really expecting, um, well, we weren't expecting what the next couple of years were going to look like. I, I, I think that most of us thought that after a couple weeks or maybe after a couple of months, things would just kind of die off and go away. And yet, what had been a sense of growing unity, at least outward displays of unity, that we had been seeing in various pockets of the church uh, were suddenly faced with all sorts of conflict and division. I had been a part of uh, some various conferences. I had attended together for the gospel in Louisville for a number of years going all the way back to 2006. And it had been just a, a growing collection of uh, young people at the time, I was in my early 30s, and to see a room full of people who were just passionate for the Lord was very invigorating. And then came along the, the gospel coalition, and, and then conferences of 5, 7, 10,000 people. It was remarkable that people were sitting and listening to the preaching and proclamation of God's Word, and then COVID hit. And the underlying issues that had maybe been just below the surface suddenly got forced all up to the top. And questions about people's faithfulness and their loyalty to Jesus Christ and what was truly a, a, an appropriate response, there just was all sorts of division. There was division in families. There was the loss of friendships, even faith communities experienced contention. There were questions, not only in the broader culture, but I would say even in the church itself, as to how do you respond to COVID? Some people felt that we needed to have a more of a passive acceptance of the regulations of the government, while some felt that there needed to be an active resistance. Nobody... Uh, Nobody had, that I know of, had taken the seminary class on preparing for pandemics. So any pastor who struggled with that, I can appreciate why. It created just an enormous tension. There had been enormous, and there still has been enormous movements between churches. And, and I'm not, no criticism if that's been you, but it's just some of the realities that what we've experienced. What we, what we saw and what we experienced was just incredible hostilities that began to surface and grow and, and percolate. No one was prepared for the serious nature of how you would respond to a government that would say that only essentials were open and churches were deemed non-essential. How do you respond to that? For most of uh, Christian leadership, they had been put in a place where their non-existent political theology was suddenly to the, to put to the test. How do, you, how do you work out your political theology in the midst of controversy? And congregations, I think, all across the world, to be honest, found themselves in a place where nobody was prepared for what came there were questions as to whether or not this is a subtle discrimination or a subtle persecution. Among Christians, there were questions of, is this, what is a faithful response? And, and when you start with those types of polarizations, then it's not very long after that that you can imagine how people respond in different ways. Well, it's faithful to love your neighbor and to, to wear a mask and to be vaccinated. Or, on the other side, it's faithful to resist the government and stay open and, and to protest. So, here we were, right? It's a little bit easier on the other side to start to reflect. But I do think that we need some time to reflect. Because I think the response that, that many Christians had was unhelpful both in the passive acceptance and the active resistance. That faithfulness was not necessarily found on one side or on the other side, but that there could be faithfulness in multiple ways. How do we respond to the pressures of a broader culture that... Let's face it, in the West, what we are beginning to experience is what happens with all true free societies. They begin to, governments begin to get a taste of power, and they exert that power, and as they exert it more and more, the temptation for all political ideologies is towards totalitarianism. It's always the way it is. And the result of that kind of temptation is... How do you respond to the broader culture when you're facing pressure? Christians have always had to think about these things. And this is not the first time in in history that we've faced such challenges, but it's also a question that we're going to need to understand in a better way. Because if COVID was a test, it was the first of a small test. There are far greater tests And if we didn't respond well in COVID, Lord have mercy upon your church in the days that are to come. Because faithfulness is going to be even more complicated. It's going to become more pressurized. And so how are we going to respond to the broader culture when when Christianity is decreasing in its influence and there can be a bemoaning of the loss of influence on the culture? How are we going to respond with faithfulness if pressure increases, which by all accounts and all measures, it seems that's the, that's the direction of free societies when they begin to get a taste of totalitarianism. That, that's where they go. There's increased pressure because there's a need for an informal conformity. It's, it's not publicly declared, but over time it's formalized, and, and as a result of that formalizing tendency you face a pressure it's in compelled speech it's in certain actions it's in education it's in healthcare. it's in how you conduct your business it's in all spheres of life and as christians who proclaim the lordship of jesus christ what does it mean to be faithful under pressure The letter of James is not a bunch of random sayings thrown together. It is for, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 1, people who have been exiled, people who were formerly Jewish and had now professed faith in Jesus Christ and had been scattered because of persecution. And as a result of that persecution, they needed to understand how do you respond appropriately when there's pressure in the culture against you and you don't have political power. And what does faithfulness look like? What does it look like? James says in chapter 3, verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? What does wisdom and understanding look like in a world of political pressure? And this is not just an individual thing. We need to understand this corporately because if we can grasp this corporately as believers in Jesus Christ, it unifies us, it strengthens us, it helps us to be a faithful witness in a world that is increasingly polarized. So let's take a look at James 3. 13 to 18, and I want to consider three things this morning in terms of what it looks like to be wise and understanding, and this would lead us to steadfastness and maturity that James has promised us in chapter 1, verse 5, and it also leads us to the kind of wisdom and understanding that enables us to be faithful in a faithless world. So the first thing that I want us to see from verse 13 is that we are to do good in meekness, Look at verse 13. Who is wise in understanding among you? And I've often said this before. I am not very original when I make my points, am I? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Point one. What does it mean to show your good conduct in works of meekness that are uh, are revealing of wisdom? What does this mean? Jesus had said to his disciples, "Come to me," Matthew 11:29. "Come to me all you who are who are who are labored and heavy-burdened, and I will give you rest. Take this yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle or I am meek and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls." Jesus had also taught his disciples in Matthew 5, verse 5. He had said that the meek were to be blessed. Blessed are the meek, for what will they inherit? They'll inherit the earth. Picking up a promise from David, from Psalm 37, verses 10 and 11, where David had said that the meek would inherit the land, but now Jesus expands the promise to the world. It's not just a little piece of of property in, in the Middle East, but rather it is the entire globe. Or we think of the promise of the Messiah, that when the Messiah would come, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 11 verse 4, that what the Messiah would come is he would come in meekness. He would show justice to the meek. Now, when we hear the word meek, what do you think of? When I, when I think about what the typical mindset is when you try to define meekness, it's often weakness, weakness passivity, a pushover, and yet Jesus shows us and he defines for us what meekness is by his own life. And sometimes it's very difficult for us to grasp what meekness looks like because we need to get, well, we don't need a definition sometimes. Definitions are good, but sometimes we need a story that's going to help us to understand practically what meekness looks like. And a story from the Old Testament, I think, actually displays what James is saying here with just incredible clarity. In Numbers chapter 12, you can turn there if you want. In Numbers chapter 12, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, we are told in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, now the man Moses was very meek more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. So Moses is described as the most meek of all people. But here's the context. In Numbers chapter 12, there is a growing challenge to Moses' authority as leader, as prophet in Israel. And where does the pressure come from? Miriam and Aaron that's Moses' sister and brother, spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has, not the Lord, has, not, has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. So here is Moses with another challenge to his leadership and to his authority. And in response to that, we hear in verse 3 now, Moses was a very meek man, the most meek man on the face of the earth. And when the Lord heard what Miriam and Aaron, Moses' sister and brother, were saying about Moses, We are told in verse 4, And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. Now here is the thing about how Moses' leadership is being challenged. He's not being challenged directly. Do you see that? The challenge to Moses' authority is, You married a Cushite woman. What kind of leader are you? Has God only spoken through you? And so there's a challenge to to Moses in terms of his leadership. This is a threat to the people of God. And so Miriam and Aaron are called forward by the Lord, and the Lord says in verse four, verse 6, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, or literally face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He beholds the form of the Lord, and when... Uh, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Now what happens after this is that when when Moses, Aaron, and Miriam have this cloud of the Lord come before them, and Moses' authority is challenged, and now the Lord defends his servant, how does Moses respond? Does he respond by trying to vindicate himself to get even with his brother and sister? No, in fact, what we're told in the following verses is that Miriam is struck with leprosy and this leprosy is a threat to her so that so much so that Aaron actually says, don't let her die, basically. Please, heal her. And so Moses cries out to the Lord in verse 13, and he prays and asks for God's mercy to heal his sister. This is what meekness looks like it is not a passive acceptance of evil, nor is it an active resistance, but it is doing good in meekness. Do you see how Moses responds? Moses' response is not to get even with his brother or sister, nor is it just to simply accept what they say and be a pushover. But what he does is he actively seeks the good of those who have opposed him. He works and he prays for Miriam's healing. Now here James says, going back to chapter 3, verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What does wisdom look like? James has just said that the way that we are to speak is that blessing should come from our mouth, not cursing. That we are to be a blessing people. And in being a blessing people, what does Moses do? He displays the wisdom of God. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all who are in need. And so Moses receives wisdom from God and he prays for his sister and prays for healing and he does good. And this is essentially what is needed. Not a passive acceptance of mistreatment, not an active resistance against those who oppose you, but trusting Jesus as Lord by doing good. Isn't this the definition of faith being displayed by good works? James had said in chapter 2 that faith is displayed by your works. You say you have faith? Good, show me your works. And the works that are displayed are not the works that we typically think of. It is in the active working for good when you're opposed. Now, that's not the natural fleshly human response. The natural human fleshly response when we are opposed is to retaliate or to retreat. That's what humans do. Instead of retaliating or retreating, Christians are called to do good. And by doing good, what we end up doing, Paul says this, we saw this last week, we we see it in Romans 12, verse 20, you heap burning coals upon your head, quoting Proverbs. That This is the act of displaying that vengeance is God's, it's not mine. I don't need to get even. God will vindicate me. And this is what exactly Moses does, is he trusts God to vindicate his leadership, his authority, by doing good. Now that is, and there's a reason I've, I've titled this book A Guide for Nonconformists. This is not the typical way that you think of responding when harm or evil is done to you. But when Jesus is our Lord, we aim to do good. Do not repay evil with evil, but repay evil with good. So we do good in meekness. And meekness, there's the example. It is not retaliating and it is not retreating. It is simply doing good for the sake of the glory of God. The second thing I want us to see from this passage is that while well, you do good, you resist zealous and selfish ambition. Now you might think, okay, Andrew, you're so clear from the text and making your points. You've got a typo there. It should be jealous. Resist jealousy and selfish ambition. Look at verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitterness, or if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and spiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish and ambition selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So twice you see the word jealous, and then you see that I've got the word zealous on the screen. And J and Z are nowhere near close. So is this a typo? No. What we have here is a, a call to counter- our fleshly response as human beings i've already mentioned before two children have to- uh, one child has a toy the other wants it uh, one child gets the toy they grab it from the other and how does another child respond bam screaming crying we want to defend our cause we want to vindicate what we want and that happens not only with little children it happens with us as adults except it becomes far more subtle but here, what James says, he says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, and we can take that to, in our individualistic culture, what we tend to do is we, we internalize these things and we individualize these things, and we fail to appreciate that James is speaking collectively to a whole group of people, and it manifests itself outwardly. And the word that is used here for je- jealousy, it's, it's got its roots in the word being zealous. Actually, in, in Greek, the word is almost identical to being zealous. Paul will say in, in Titus uh, 2.14, to be zealous for good works. And the idea of being zealous is to be passionate and to be eager and to be quick. And here, James is actually using this idea to say, don't be zealous for selfish ambition." That the temptation that comes is to respond in ways, James says it here in verse 15, it's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's hellish. And the kind of, we went through the book of Proverbs and we remember from Proverbs there's two paths, there's the path of life and there's the path of death. James is picking up that same kind of idea, there's two paths. There's there's earthly wisdom that is unspiritual. It is demonic or hellish. And here he is addressing this kind of hellish type of, of action, which will produce, he says in verse 16, every sort of vile practice and all kinds of disorder. And you can tell, you want to know if something has jealous, selfish Zealous selfish ambition, the way that you can see it is it creates division it creates disorder it creates vile practices. Now what are these vile practices? We know from this letter already we don 't have to be we, we don 't have to be biblical scholars to figure this out. the temptations that come when you want to defend your cause, when you're losing your influence, when you want to hold on to your rights, there are several things that we've seen already. James has said in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, that, that anger does not produce the righteousness of God. That we need to bridle our tongues. He'll reiterate that in chapter 3, that, that the tongue, it's just this small little, here, uh, Right? That little piece of flesh can do incredible damage. And that divisive speech done in anger can cause great destruction. Now, I was given a couple of illustrations when I was growing up about why I should watch my words. On one occasion, when I was careless with my mouth, my mother squeezed out the toothpaste and said, Put it back into the tube. I didn't get the toothpaste back into the tube but I didn't quite learn my lesson. I needed to learn to control my tongue. It was when someone told me a story of how they had been taught how when you are careless with your words, imagine taking a feather pillow outside on a windy day, and you tear the feather pillow open, and you empty all the feathers out of your pillow. The wind will blow those feathers all around. And this person said, I was taught that careless words are like ripping open a pillow full of feathers and dumping them out on a windy day and then being told, go and pick up all the feathers and put them back in. You can get some of the feathers back, but you'll never be able to deal with the loss that happens when you've emptied that pillow of all its feathers. In the same way, when we open our mouths and are careless with our words, you can apologize, you can say sorry, but the damage is done. You can't get all the feathers back into the pillow, just like you can't get all the toothpaste back into the tube, and you can't get words back into your mouth. And they have a way of scattering far and wide that can do incredible damage. And James says that that the kind of vileness and disorder that's produced is often, it often begins with this little piece of flesh in your mouth. And that how much damage has been done because people retaliate with their tongues. That divisive speech, James says in chapter 1, verse 20, anger does not produce the righteous life that God requires second way that we see all kinds of division and disorder, we saw it in chapter 2. It's this playing of favorites. That when you lose power, what do you do? You have a temptation to go to people who have power so that you can get their favor. And by getting their favor, you can stand back in a good stead. But this actually is counterproductive. James says. It's just like the kings of Israel who would create a political alliances with unbelieving nations instead of trusting the Lord. Instead, what we should realize at these vile practices and these words is what they, what they do. and it, it, they, don't, they don't get the favor of those who are rich on your side. They actually cause people who have power to use their power against you. Which is why... I think it's such a mistake for Christians to think that political power is the way that we regain the culture. Politics uses people. Politics, over time, what it becomes is this desire to maintain power for the sake of having power, which is why in democracies we kick governments out, because we recognize the corruption that begins to grow up, that power breeds absolute power and corruption. And so James doesn't want us to have the favor of the rich. Rather, what James says is that true religion that God our Father accepts, chapter 1, verse 27, is that it's careful with its tongue, and it does good to the powerless. When you are powerless, what do you need to do? You don't need power. You need to give away. You need to give away and give away and give away. It is so counterintuitive. It, it's, it's why this book is a guide for nonconformists. Because the way that you're going forward is not by trying to get power, it's by giving it away. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And, and as a church, one of the things that I think about is, how can we be giving away more and more? Because I don't think that we're going to lose by giving away. I think we're going to gain by giving away. Because that, that's the way that God's work happens, is by giving and you give, and, and, and God blesses when you give. He doesn't withhold. And so the result of just giving to the poor and the needy, it's why Christians in the ancient world, the, the Roman Emperor Julian, who had grown up in a Christian home, had rejected the faith when he saw Christians going to garbage dumps and getting babies that were still living that had been abandoned in garbage dumps, he was infuriated by Christianity because what he hated about Christianity was it made the royal, the royal system of, of the empire look bad. That's that heaping coals upon people's heads by doing good. You see, by doing good, you're you're actually showing how evil evil is without ever having to be retaliatory or retreating. That what you end up doing in this world is you display the glory of the goodness of God by doing good. And this produces the righteous life that God requires. It's not by the wisdom of this world. We sow this leads us to the last thing, that we resist zealous and selfish ambition because what we need to be doing is we need to sow peace for a harvest of righteousness. And the good works that James commends to us are seen in verses 17 and 18. But... The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The good works that God has prepared for us in advance to do, Jesus teaches us them in the Beatitudes, which James is just reiterating for us. He is showing us what the blessed life looks like. He looks like. It looks like being poor in spirit. It looks like mourning. It looks like being meek. It looks like being a peacemaker. It looks like being those who are persecuted and who do not retaliate. It's the people who control their tongue. It's the people who don't show favoritism to the rich, but care for the poor and needy. It's the ones who, when they have no power, they show that power isn't what matters. It's about doing good. That's where true power lies. That's in our weakness that we are strong, as Paul will say. That it's not in showing favoritism. It's in blessing and not in cursing. And when we do these things, James says in verse 18, sorry, at the end of verse 17, That this is impartial and sincere. Now that word impartial is a difficult word to translate. It could be translated as unwavering. Which goes back to the beginning of this book, doesn't it? Where we are told that the person who is steadfast in faith is not wavering. They're not a double-minded person. Because what God wants to produce in us as the kind of people who trust in Jesus Christ is the kind of goodness that the world needs. To be salt and light. To produce a harvest of righteousness. Because the way of Christ is not getting even in animosity. But it is understanding as Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That we are not vindicated by getting even nor by retreating. The way that we are vindicated is by gentleness seen in good. Which is what wisdom looks like. Do you want to see a wise person? When they are mistreated, they do good. That's a wise person. They don't retaliate. They don't get even. Which leads me back To the whole discussion about COVID. I've had time to think about it, and I trust you have had too. And did we respond appropriately? There were those who said that those churches that shut down were unfaithful, and those were harsh words. And there were those who said, no, we are loving our neighbor and you're not by staying open. The reality is that faithfulness is not seen in whether you shut down or in whether you stayed open. Faithfulness is actually seen in how you treated people who disagreed with you and opposed you. That's where true wisdom actually is. You see... Faithfulness is not simplistic. Faithfulness doesn't look just like this and it's a narrow, narrow strip. Faithfulness looks like gentleness and meekness. It looks like praying for the body of Christ when there was incredible division. And it means that we ought to be charitable even in the days where there is ongoing division that has come out of it. COVID was a test. And all of us need to learn the test, from the test, that what we need is we need tongues that we get control of, and that we not speak ill of people who disagree with us, that when we feel like we don't have power or when church is called non-essential, that we don't retaliate or retreat, but that we do good. And doing good can look different in different contexts and in different ways. But the aim ought to be that our motive is love from a pure heart and then sincere faith, as Paul will say to Timothy. Because what we want to sow, as James says here, we want to sow in peace. And the word peace goes all the way back to the Old Testament with this idea of shalom, which is the idea of well-being. And that well-being can look different in different ways at different times and in different contexts. But the aim is that in doing what is good, what we are aiming for is for the good of the world. You see, when we are doing good, when we go back to this idea that who is wise and understanding among you, by his good conduct let him show his good works in, meekness, in the meekness of wisdom. Church, can we grow in doing more good? Can we give away when we have no power so that the world would look at us and wonder, why is it that we're not concerned about political power but we're more concerned about doing good? Can we be more concerned about about loving neighbor as we love ourselves in whatever way that looks without judging one another in harshness. Can we be a people who bring together one another, who come together under the unity of Jesus Christ? For when Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when, threat, when threats were uttered against him, he did not utter threats back. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2. And entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, he went to a cross to die for our sins, not his. He who had done no wrong accepted and received the punishment for our wrong so that while he takes our wrongs and our sins, he might give us the righteousness of God. That's what the wisdom of meekness looks like. If we have a Savior who has done that for us, who has saved us, who calls us to follow Him, then let us renounce worldly ways that are earthly, unspiritual, and hellish. And let us follow in the path of Jesus the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we confess that what we need is we need your wisdom because we are facing even more polarized days so some of us in this room right now we're we're very mindful that we have said things that were unhelpful inappropriate maybe even sinful to friends or family members in the past and it's created division Some of us have retreated, some of us have retaliated, and in this moment, Lord, if there's someone that comes to mind that you bring to our minds, would you help us to own our wrong and to confess it right now? And then, Lord, I pray that you would help us to do good. Not just to pass over things that maybe were said and just try and do good to try and erase it, but that you would help us to do good by humbling ourselves and apologizing, reconciling relationships, which is the display of wisdom to love other people that you would help us to be a people who sow in peace so that we would reap a harvest of righteousness. Lord, do good in us so that we might do good to a world that so desperately needs it. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.